Good morning, church. How are you guys? Oh, thank you. If you'll indulge me for just a moment, would you close your eyes? And I'm going to read just a few quotes this morning. And as you're there with your eyes closed, I want you to just take that in and let your mind go wherever your mind will go, okay? I'm bad, and that's good. I will never be good, and that's not bad. There's no one I'd rather be than me. Or how about this one? Can you feel the love tonight, the peace the evening brings, the world for once in perfect harmony with all its living things? Or how about this one? I can't stop Andy from growing up, but I wouldn't miss it for the world. Or how about this one? A lie keeps growing and growing until it's plain as the nose on your face. And my favorite. Ohana means family. Family means nobody gets left behind or forgotten. Okay, you guys can open up your eyes. Stories. These were just a selection of lines from none other than Walt Disney's favorite collection of stories. But I bet as you were sitting there, it didn't take you very long to be drawn into the story. If you're familiar with any of these movies, I bet you had a picture in your mind of what was going on, what the characters were feeling, how they were interacting with each other, enable, enabling you sorry, to ponder something greater. That's what stories do. The story of Disney's Frozen to ponder love or Wreck-It Ralph to ponder fitting in or Toy Story to ponder family and belonging. Even hearing a small snippet of these stories brings you right into an environment. It brings you into a specific time and place with stimuli, a smell, an emotion, dreams. They leave you both wanting more and wanting to know why. And this, my friends, goes far beyond just Disney. Stories, we thrive off of them. We live for them. They're a part of all of our lives. They define who we are in many ways as humans. But stories, both good and bad, have an agenda. They're designed for a purpose, to tell you and to tell me how the world is supposed to be every single day. From the simplest Disney story to the deepest memoir, stories bring purpose and meaning and a way of life. If we haven't met before, my name is Nathan, and I have the awesome privilege of serving as the technical director here at Ellerslie. And here at Ellerslie this summer, we've been starting a series on just this, stories. Summer blockbusters, stories of God moving. That's what it says behind me. Here at Ellerslie, though, we do not believe that the Bible is written as a step-by-step -step manual. You know, at 10,000 kilometers, make sure you change that oil or that coolant. But rather as a grand story, a narrative of God building his kingdom on earth throughout time, throughout space, and using you and me. Stories, when used appropriately, 
they begin to form us as a person. They're a key part of what shapes our understanding of the world around us. So for a minute, I invite you, think back with me. What stories are you living into? We're surrounded by the news. We're surrounded by Netflix, by social media. We're surrounded by novels, by music. All of these forms of entertainment or, or um, media around us have a very specific narrative. They want you to buy into something, to believe something, to become something, to cause you to shape your life around something. And so as we talk today about stories, the question begs itself right off the top for you and for me. What story are you currently living into and letting your life be shaped around? What story would that be? For some of you, the story might be one where in COVID, you've been laid off time and time again, and you just don't know how you will ever do something you're passionate about. For others, you are madly in love, and you just can't wait to marry that special someone. For others, you're a single parent. You wake up every day and just don't know how you're going to put food on the table. And for others, you have the best story. You are retired and living your best life now. Hallelujah. Amen. Horror stories, love stories, fairy tales, life is full of them. And they're guided by them to some degree or another. And yet, for some of you in this room and online, you live in this semi-conscious haze of waking up in the morning and never knowing what story you're living into. Or you wake up every morning and never know why you live into that story. You don't understand your story any longer. You've been laid off, but deep down you know you're more than your ability to perform. You're in love, but you don't know how you can wait. You are a single parent and you don't know how to put food on the table. Or you're just like anybody else and getting up in the morning is hard sometimes. That's the power of a story. One minute, everything is perfect, and the next minute, all is in upheaval. And whether you've realized it or not, a story, a cultural narrative, something that culture is narrating over you, the world at your fingertips has begun defining and shaping your life. So again, the question must be begged off the top. What is your story? And what cultural narrative is defining that story? You see, we are defined by and either consciously or subconsciously living into stories every single day. But furthermore, maybe what has more impact than the story you're living right now is how that story began. How you read and understand the opening of a story drastically changes how you understand and comprehend and live into the middle and the end of that story. You see, personally, there might be childhood trauma, if that's your story. Maybe you were raised by a single parent. You immigrated from a war-torn country. You failed in school. You stood up for something you believed in, and you were ridiculed. Whatever that story might be, it has had a profound impact on you today, whether you realize it or not. And so this morning, let's take a step back. 
Let's step back to the, the beginning of the story, the beginning of my story, the beginning of your story, the beginning of God's story. We're going to look at his introduction. And for those who might not remember, because English class was decades ago, or because English class was last semester and it's summer, the introduction is the beginning of the story. And it's often during this stage uh, where the narrator develops plot, he introduces us to characters, he invites us into the surroundings of what happened or what's going to happen. It's here in the introduction we come to realize something very important, that stories, regardless of fiction or realistic, stories are not written in a vacuum, but they're based on the perspective of a greater culture. It's surroundings is what influences it. And let's, here in the beginning of the story, where the foundation is laid, come to better understand the story, better understand why that foundation was laid and how it impacts the rest of the story. By the end of this morning, I want you to see that this too is true with God's story. That the beginning, the the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, it enables us to answer a very important question. What does it mean to be human? And from there, see how the rest of the story unfolds. What is my purpose? So if you have your Bible or a Bible app or you want to grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, we're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2 this morning. And we are going to hear God's purpose for humanity. So I invite you to turn to page one of the story, Genesis 1. And as you turn there, let me take a moment to catch you up on what this wonderful stick drama did for us. I didn't even know sticks could dramatize Genesis 1, but that's what happened. Um, and so let's, let's understand that before we dive into the second half of Genesis 1. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, at the beginning of time, God created. This is important because instantly it sets apart God's story, our story, from that of every other story. The ancient Near East culture was vastly different the Babylonians, the Egyptians, this is not their story. God did not fight his way to the top of some pile of deities, but rather with his word over and over again, speaks into chaos. The chaos we find in Genesis 1, he speaks order. Our God speaks order into any surrounding chaos today, tomorrow, and forever and does so as the most powerful God of the universe. As author John Walton might help us to visualize here, he uses a company analogy to understand the first half of Genesis 1. And he says, The created days are assigned their offices, their cubicles, told whom they report to, and thus given an idea of their place in the company. Their workday is determined by the clock, and they are expected to be productive. Foremen have been put in place, and the plant is now ready for operation. But before the company is ready to operate, the owner is going to arrive and move into his office. Yahweh, the Jewish name for God revealed to Moses, he 
takes darkness and orders it into light. He takes water and orders it into sky and to sea, orders land for animals. He orders sky for birds and water for fish. And then just to put it over the top, if he hasn't already, he takes all the chaos in the cosmos and orders it in a way that humanity, that you and I can thrive. Translated maybe more literally, we find ourselves in Eden, a land that is of luxury and fullness. Eden. And for it's here we see that Genesis 1 is a simple but majestic account of God's bringing order to the cosmos that results in a picture of an ordered, purposeful world with God at the helm, masterfully guiding its course. That results in a picture of an ordered, purposeful world with God at the helm, masterfully guiding its course. The creator has, at the end of the first half of Genesis 1, created a good creation. And in other words, he has made life to be at rest. The office is now ready for operation. And it's here, at this point in the story, that we distinctly arrive at Genesis 1, 26. And so I invite you in your Bibles to join with me in reading Genesis 1, 26, and the first half says this, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Oh, sorry, that's verse 28. We're going to get there. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. After our likeness. I, I think this is probably the most beautiful and yet uniquely, uniquely cliche, maybe, part of our Western church. You are made in the image of God. Yet how many times have we heard that on a Sunday morning from the preacher, from our Sunday school teacher, our youth leader, or our favorite podcaster? You are important because you're made in the image of God. And then go on and not care. In my experience, more often than not. We likely hear it so much and so often and so greatly in our lives that it's become this easy quip or throwaway line. I'm made in the image of God. But this can't be so. Because at the pinnacle of creation, it is just that that is said towards humanity. You are made in the image of God. We weren't made and just left, but rather created, purposed, tasked to be the image of God. Yet, if the beginning of the story is supposed to set up the rest of the story, the question now that has to be begged is, how is it doing that? How is the beginning of this story giving purpose, showing how God is moving and reveal, revealing what it means to be God's image today? And so for that, let's begin parsing that out with this coin. This coin here has two sides to it. It has a side with a loon on it and a side with the image of a queen, commonly known in Canada as the loony. Now, holding this coin in any store, I have the power to buy anything I want. Granted, it doesn't cost more than a dollar. Why? Because it's a piece of metal? Because it's something that we've agreed upon? No. Because in our system of currency, we have on it placed the image of the queen. 
Queen Elizabeth. This image gives the coin, and therefore me, the authority, the authority to buy. It gives me the authority to have power somewhere where I did not have power in this store. And yet without the image of the queen stamped on this coin in a very particular way, I would simply be carrying around nothing more than a picture of a loon every single day. But very simply, because of this, because of the image on this coin, it has deep intrinsic value to all those around it. It ceases to be metal and begins to become currency. It's found its purpose in life because of the image. Or again, think with me about the concept of a foreign minister in today's society. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's someone who travels to another nation to speak on behalf of their nation. They themselves have absolutely no power to affect change, to make policy, or to interact in such a way. But rather, on behalf of the one that they come in the name of, they have the power to do that, to affect change in foreign relations on behalf of their own government. They come bearing the representation or the image of the one who is in charge. And this concept would not have been lost on original hearers because they too did something very similar. You see, in the ancient Near East, when a ruler would come to power, whether it be from winning a war or through lineage, they would travel around town placing their image, literal statues, standing at the center and the east and the west all around town. And they would do this because the people would, going about their normal everyday life at work and at home, they would come across these images and they would be forced to see the king. They would be reminded who is powerful, who is in charge, who their God is. And I think here we're, we're supposed to think of the story of Daniel and his friends who were asked to bow before Nebuchadnezzar at this statue. This is what we're talking about. And yet it's interesting, as author Richard Middleton would say in his book, The Liberating Image, he would say this. He would say, after having built a city, the king erects a statue to be honored by his citizens. So God, after finishing creation, set man as his image, that all creatures in rendering service to him should pay honor to their creator. Right here in Genesis 1, not more than one page into God's great story, you, yes you, even today, are Yahweh's illustrative picture. You were made to represent, to reflect, to stand as statue for, to image the very God who not mere verses ago created a very good creation. And that is the purpose of God's story. That we are to stand in the workplace and at home and everywhere in between as Yahweh's statue, his representatives for all people to better worship their creator. Now, don't get me wrong. This is a big, big task. And there's probably many questions like, what would that even look like today? Or what did it look like back then? But the good news is the author of scripture knows how to set up a story well. And so he continues. And if you'll join me in reading verse 26 to 28 of Genesis chapter 1, it says this. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all, that, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And have dominion. As God's image, as Yahweh's representatives, he tells us to have dominion or maybe more culturally to rule and to reign. This here is royal kingship language because you are to rule alongside being the image of God as being the image of God. This is kingly language because to be an image means to reflect and to represent the king. And what does the king do? What does our God do? He rules in a way that orders society. We must not rule in ways that do not represent our God, but rule in ways and create in ways that do represent our God. And so Genesis 1 stands here reminding that we must live in a way that chooses to rule creatively, rule with an intent to bring order, to separate good and evil, much like God did throughout the first half of chapter 1. Now look with me at verse 29 when, God, when Moses says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Again, I'm reading the wrong verse. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Or how about this in chapter two now, verse 10 to 14, where God says, that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havala, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris and flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Wow. Seemingly small details to be concerned in the beginning of our story. Maybe not. Because I believe, like many others, that the world is teeming with potential. Teeming with water, with rock, with gold, with delium, with onyx, with wood, with seeds. The list could go on. And we, in our creative abilities, like the very God in the beginning, are asked to bring order to this raw potential as iron workers with steel, as cooks with food, as woodworkers with lumber, as an accountant with knowledge, taking the raw potential of every circumstance and ordering it purposefully. In the greater story of God, we are to take this raw potential and to order it into a functioning and fruitful society. This picture is better seen, I think, at the end of the story, 
where in the book of Revelation, we have this beautiful picture of a city coming down from heaven. Humanity has fulfilled its task and we do not see a garden coming down from heaven because city has taken the raw, because people have taken the raw potential, ordered it, and created something beautiful that we now see looking a lot more like a city. Humanity has fulfilled its task and imaged God in a way that takes this raw potential and makes it purposeful. Author John Mark Comer would say this. He said, he would say, you are to do good, to mirror and to mimic what God is like to the world, to stand at the interface between the creator and its creation, implementing God's creative, generous blessing over all the earth and giving voice to the creation's worship. And so the question now becomes, as an image of God, how will your story reflect the one who is creative and brings order to society? How will you creatively rule and reign in society in a way that in your community, you are creating something where God can thrive? A big task, yes, but there's more. Look with me now at chapter 2 and verse 15. Chapter 2 and verse 15, where God says this. He says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. To work and to keep it. Now, these seem like very small words, pointless maybe, but they are standing here before the nation of Israel, the original hearers of these words, and setting a precedent like no other. These are important words because as Moses is penning the book of Numbers, we see this, that he says, they shall keep guard over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. Or as the NIV would translate it differently, they would say they are to perform duties for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. And what we see here was this, that given to the priests of Israel was actually a job that was given first to you and to me, to keep and to guard, to work and to minister in the tabernacle or in the garden. With these two simple words, Moses here is saying at the beginning of our story, look, Humanity is designed not only to co-king, to rule alongside our God, but to be priests of Yahweh to their communities all day, every day. As commentator Tremper Longman would add, he would say this, that Adam's assigned role as guard of Eden, the place where God and humanity live in perfect harmony, it anticipates the role of the priesthood, which is later assigned to watch over God's world and protect the covenant. Now, I could go on and on and on here and not get anywhere. But as a way to further illustrate this, I'd love for Daniel to dim the lights and you guys all to check out this video. If you lived in ancient Israel, one of the most important places was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a sacred tent that the Israelites carried as they journeyed to the promised land. And it was sacred because it's where the heavenly presence of Israel's God lived on earth. And the tabernacle had an important design to show just how special it was. There's the outer courtyard, 
then an entry room into the tent, and it leads into the center of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, God's personal throne room, and it's guarded by these heavenly hybrid creatures called cherubim. Notice, the closer that you get to the center, the more sacred the space becomes. The people who work in the tabernacle are called priests, and they care for the sacred space, offer sacrifices on behalf of Israel, and announce God's blessing over the people. Yeah, these priests represent God to the people, and they represent the people to God. So think of both the tabernacle and the priests who work in it like gateways that link together heaven and earth. And this is why the tabernacle was eventually brought up to settle on a mountain, because mountains are where earth meets heaven. Now, one thing that's missing in this tabernacle that you would find in every other ancient holy space are idol images that physically represent the God. Oh right, Israel's God explicitly commanded them to not make any idol images. And that's because in the Bible, all humanity is God's image. This is what we learn in the first pages of the Bible, where Adam and Eve, in Hebrew their names mean human and life, they're called God's image, which means they represent God in his holy space. And that holy space is a garden in a land called Eden. Yes, and the story is designed to show that Eden is the reality that the later tabernacle symbolized and pointed back to. For example, look close at the descriptions of Eden. There's the larger region on the land that's called Eden, but then within Eden, God plants a garden. And then in the center of that garden, God plants the tree of life. The design of Eden matches the tabernacle design. Yes. And there are details in the Eden story that are developed much later in the Bible showing how Eden is on a high mountain. Because they're in a place where earth meets heaven. Exactly. And God tells these humans to work and to keep the garden. These are the same words that are used later in the Bible to describe what priests do in the tabernacle. So Adam and Eve are God's image and are like priests working and worshiping in a type of heaven on earth temple. Yes, they represent creation before God, and as God's image, they represent God to all of creation. And they do all of this in this sacred space that's saturated with the life and presence of God. And so God tells them to rule creation on his behalf. They're like priests who embody God's heavenly wisdom and rule here on earth. You could call them royal priests. Exactly. Now, this whole setup, the royal priests in God's presence where there's abundance and life. In the book of Genesis, this is called God's blessing. That video was put out by a group called The Bible Project. If you haven't heard of them or seen their resources, I would highly encourage you to go and check them out. And it's a shameless plug. Um, the rest of scripture commentates on this fact after Genesis 1 and 2. The judges, the kings, the prophets, the apostles, the church, yes, even Jesus. They all point to what Yahweh's society is and how we are to rule, to keep, and to guard it every single day in our communities. I think of Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he says this. He says, you have heard it said that it uh, said that you shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Or you have heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Or you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As priests of Yahweh, we, like Jesus, are to take what society teaches us and then to be actively a part of reordering, reshaping, recreating it in a way that aligns with God's dream for society. That is, that a way that aligns with God's kingdom. We are priests to this end, that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Many people ask me today, is this really your favorite story? Or did you just want a hard passage to preach on? And to them, I would laugh and say, how can you not love this story? This sets the backdrop for you and for me in our purpose every single day. One so grand that we can't believe it, and yet so subtle that sometimes we don't even see it. We are kings and priests. We are kings and priests made in the image of God. We are kings and priests to God. That is our purpose in the beginning. And that remains our purpose today. Because remember, the beginning of the story has to greatly affect the middle and the end of every story. Jesus taught us how to rule and to reign. And we need to become like Jesus. So I invite you into that today. To rule and to reign. And I have this question as I invite the music team back to stage. A simple question for you to think about. How will you take up the mantle of taking the raw potential, whatever that might be in your life, at home and at work, every single day, taking that raw potential and ordering it in a way that creates a beautiful and functioning society. And then to take it one step further, how will you do that in a way and then guard that and keep that for all those in your life that they may see God and be able to worship him more fully? So today we are to do this as our purpose. We are to order society like God. We are to rule society like God. And we are to minister to society like God. You are to become more like God because you are his image. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ability to live and to breathe for the beginning of it all. But we thank you in the beginning that you gave us a purpose. Father, help us today to see your purpose in our lives and to see how that might encompass and surround our everyday life. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would teach us how to become more like you so that we can be better images today, we pray. Amen. <laughs>